Hey there, it's Ray. We are in the final week of our summer vacation, and I wanted to bring you an episode that's about probably the biggest question I'm being asked right now. There's not a single day that goes by that I'm not asked, how do we advance our health equity initiatives? And one of the first things you'll hear me say is that you need a strong data backbone. That's exactly what we learned when we sat down with Kate Sommerfeld and Brian Miller of ProMedica. Kate is the president of Social Determinants of Health, and Brian is actually their chief medical information officer. That means we go deep on why data and analytics is so critical to any health equity initiative. From Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. The impact of COVID-19 and the racial unrest felt by so many communities have, for better or for worse, shined a spotlight on health equity. That's why so many organizations are expanding their services beyond just what happens inside the four walls of the health system. That's exactly why I wanted to speak with the folks at ProMedica. ProMedica has spent the last decade successfully addressing the root causes of the social determinants of health. So we've brought a few members of their leadership team to Radio Advisory to talk about how they got started, where they're headed next, and why data and analytics is an essential part of any SDOH strategy. Welcome to Radio Advisory. We've got Kate Sommerfeld and Dr. Brian Miller on the line. First, Dr. Miller, do you mind if I if I call you Brian? Absolutely. We we like nicknames. We we like casual here on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I I understand that you all are both dialing in from the great state of Ohio. Is that right? That's true. We would make lots of jokes about uh, Buckeyes versus Michigan, but we are uh, dialing in from Toledo, Ohio, and so thrilled to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity again. Um, we had a, a healthy discussion around uh, Ohio State versus uh, Michigan, and so depending on where you land in that, uh, we'll either uh, engage with you or not, right? Officially, because we have institutions on both sides of that, that state line, we're neutral, but we also know where our hearts lie. That's exactly right. Toledo is always tricky because, like you said, you're so close to the Michigan border. But but we'll leave our, our football affiliations aside uh, to have a have a, a great conversation. Kate, I actually want to start with you because you have a pretty unique role at ProMedica, and I think it actually might be the first of its kind. What does it actually mean to be the president of social determinants of health? Yeah, so being the first, it's either both, I think, exciting and also terrifying. I think that's right, as we worked with health systems and payers around the country. About two years ago, as an organization, we decided to really put a stake in the ground and tackle the non-clinical issues that affect the health of our members and our patients and our broader communities. And so being able to address and really focus on things, understand around housing and food and financial stability, and so really focused on those non-clinical aspects that that drive health. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we're here to talk about. And Brian, you have an interesting role as well. So you're the chief medical information officer, which I have to admit, when I looked at, it kind of struck me as something that folks might not assume connects seamlessly into somebody's social determinants of health strategy. So what role do you play? I do get that a lot, and I'm glad to answer that question because I think the the future of STOH in healthcare really has a very 
important digital connection. So in order to get to the next level of interventions and to make a difference in lives from a clinical standpoint, that always now starts with data. And of course, data with the electronic medical record now being the center and the language that we use and translate around healthcare opportunities, data equals evidence and evidence is what actually drives practice. And if the practice is going to include SDOH interventions to improve lives, we need that data, we need that evidence. And so the information technology component is a real key piece to deliver into that need. I want to start a little bit at the beginning of the journey at ProMedica. We've talked about social determinants of health a little bit on the podcast before, and the reality is there is a lot that organizations can do to impact those non-clinical aspects of health. So how did it actually start at ProMedica, and what were those initial social determinants that you all focused on? Yeah, Ray. So it's really interesting as we reflect almost a 10-year journey. We started when the issue around childhood obesity was kind of the hot button issue, right? And so we started working in our local public schools and we said, okay, we're a nonprofit mission-based system. We're going to help fix kids' weight problems, right? And so we started to to work with students and school nurses and teachers. And very quickly, it was around 08 and the downturn of the economy. And very quickly, the feedback from those kids and students in the public school said, you know, that's great from a healthcare perspective. You want to talk about childhood obesity. The reality is we're hungry. We're struggling with mm. things like food insecurity. And we don't have access to grocery stores. And we're relying on our corner store that, that doesn't have healthy food. And so, okay, health system, you know, you come with your agenda around childhood obesity obesity, we need to talk about food access. And that's really a struggle. And so that was like a gut check for us to to say, oh my gosh, okay, well, if our mission is to improve the health of our communities, then we've got to be in the hunger space. We have to think differently about food as medicine. And that really started our journey down this path. I wonder if you can help me level set some of the variation that we're seeing in the market right now. What would you all say is the most basic, the kind of 1.0 that most healthcare organizations are at when it comes to addressing social determinants of health? And I would say, you know, across the industry, from a provider health system, it's really a bell-shaped curve, right? You've got a handful of systems that are living in that, okay, we're going to do the bare minimum. And then you've got a handful of systems that are really pushing the needle, that are thinking integratively. How do we identify patients around issues? How do we deploy interventions? How do we measure that over time and make really big population health investments? But most part, it's really in the middle, right? Folks are saying, okay, we understand social and economic issues affect the health of our patients, but show me the the data, right? And what is the proof points and how do you actually address it, right? Because it's so, so difficult. It all comes down to data because, number one, you want to work your mission. You want to help people, but you actually still need to have metrics around it. You actually still need to know, all right, where are the patients coming from? How do we identify them? How do we connect them downstream? And most importantly, how do we validate that those downstream community benefit opportunities are actually improving health and making a difference in those lives? So for me, it starts, I'm looking the other direction. I'm looking at the clinical front end. I'm talking to my clinicians about just just from a cultural standpoint, what kind of questions are we asking, right? Can we are we starting to ask the right questions of our patients in our clinical setting and identify those needs so that we can connect them downstream? Is that the most basic piece of data that you're speaking about? 
It starts with identifying patients. I think the most basic piece is starting with screening, connecting at the most basic level for the community organizations that you've already got a relationship with. And I would actually be even more specific. So, you know, if you look at the uh, the SDOH issues historically, the focus primarily for all those decades was around the hungry, the homeless, and the destitute. So it's a, it's a, for me, it's a food, money, shelter thing. Mm-hmm. I think for this audience, most of us have seen that. I feel like it's, we, I, we've identified since COVID how core that is, what those needs are. So most of us have, have a stable home probably that are listening to this podcast and it's a stable home to isolate in and how important uh, housing has been. And you got to get food into that house and you got to maintain your income. Can I work from home or do I have to go out in order to, so I can keep that house and, and generate that food, you know, outside of a Netflix account, I think food, money, shelter are really the basic core from an SDOH standpoint. And if you're going to start screening, those are the three domains to start in because those are the, I think, probably the most basic and most important. Yeah. And the one area I would just add to that, that we're certainly seeing um, an uptick for patients and actually our own employees as well is around childcare. Um, So with everything happening this fall with schools, you know, we have bedside nurses and clinicians that have to be caregiving. And yet they have kids now that schools may have been canceled or go remotely. And so I think childcare around COVID certainly starts to escalate, again, both from a patient perspective, but also for health system employees. And then you layer the equity. We as healthcare really have to start to look in the mirror. It's a real clarion call in a moment for us to say, okay, we've been doing community benefit work. We've been scratching the surface, but how do we layer in and really challenge ourselves around the investments we're making? And is it truly driving equity? both internal policies, but also the work we're doing across communities as well. And and to be you know frank about it, we have a long way to go, mm-hmm. both in terms of building trust, but also in terms of aligning our investments to ensure we're really driving policy system environmental change to get after equity in a way that we haven't done as an industry. I think that's right. And I agree that it starts with data. And I want to make sure I get this right. It sounds like you at ProMedica actually have stored in the EMR data on this food, money, shelter, perhaps there's even more for all of your patients. Is that right? Yeah, we we have a really broad screening process. In the last three years, we've gone from 4,000 screens to 8,000 screens to 40,000 screens. And we're actually tracking in the next 12 months to get well into the six digits, we'll probably run 150,000 screens because we have so many venues of care now because we're a fairly large organization and we're exploiting the opportunity to get that data and identify need because it starts with the need identification. And yes, in our clinical setting, we have built that into our EMR and we have a culture that insists that we adopt that practice and we identify those needs. And so tell me, practically speaking, maybe even in an illustrative patient journey, what would happen if in a regular family medicine visit, you find out through this screening service that maybe somebody doesn't have access to food or somebody does have an unstable housing situation? What are actually the next steps that would happen? We actually screen around, I think, Dr. Miller, 12 or 13 domains. Um, 14 now. 14, 14 domains. Yeah. And so we're asking questions around, are you struggling with food? Do you have stable housing? If there's a positive screen, we're connecting that patient member or resident to the right services. So sometimes those are community-based services. So if a patient, as an example, screens positive for domestic violence, we're connecting to our local YWCA domestic violence shelter. Sometimes those are interventions that, as a health system, we actually operate and own. So as an example, we have financial opportunity centers where we're building credit, we're doing financial coaching, we're doing free tax preparation, we're getting folks out of predatory lending. And so if a patient were to screen positive to 
say, yep, you know, I'm struggling with paying my bills. We actually connect those patients to financial coaches and they're providing ongoing services. So they're doing taxes, they're rebuilding credit. We have twin accounts where we're building assets and net worth over time, connecting to employment. And then based on those supports and connections, we're looking at the impact, not only on the clinical setting, right? Because that patient might come in and be a diabetic or have issues, you know, a pregnant mom. So we're looking at the impact clinically, but also as it relates to financial coaching and measuring that impact over time based on ER usage, right? So did folks mm-hmm. who were supported with financial coaching, did we see them get better health care? Did their costs reduce? And so it's connecting to services and then measuring that impact both clinically, but also around the social and economic issues as well. And I I have to, I'm going to put on my pessimist hat for a moment because while everything you just said are absolutely drivers of health, I can also see a world where somebody might push back and say, this is important, but it's not the role of the hospital system or it's not the role of me, the physician or me, the nurse. Somebody should do it in my community. But you know, we've got too much going on at ProMedica. This shouldn't be our job. I'm curious, in the last decade, have you gotten that pushback? And and how do you actually address it? So I'm going to jump in on that one and tell you that, again, it starts in the clinical side and it starts around evidence. And so generally that argument starts with, it's not our role. We'd like to do it, but we can't afford to. I think the answer is we feel like you can't afford not to. If you start with the supposition that the the impact of SDOH is 50 to even 80% of a person's health. If you can move the needle positively on 50 or 80% of the person's health, you can not only improve that health, you are by the very nature of that improving the cost of that patient's care. And so for me, it comes back to, again, to that triple aim, better health, better cost, better experience. And so from a clinician standpoint, I'll admit, we don't think about cost very much in order we care about it, but we do care about health. But if I'm improving that patient's health and I'm, by that very nature, improving the cost curve, it's the cost curve that actually gets people to start to buy in. And if you can start to reduce a patient's cost, you can actually get healthcare organizations involved and payers involved. And we're actually seeing that start to happen. That data is important for us to go, look, this isn't just a feel-good. It does make you feel good. But we've actually reduced that patient's cost. By that very nature, we've improved their experience because they're more healthy. And those are the things we care about cost turns ahead and cost gets you involved. You can't afford not to be in this space. I think that's true. And I think one way to engage the clinicians is by talking about the cost argument. But I have to admit that I'm hearing in my head the voice of a frontline provider saying, but I don't have time to do this, or I don't have the resources or the education to actually do this, even if I want to. How do you address that that kind of pushback? You know, I think once you start to see the data to show when you address and, and help someone who's homeless get stable housing, the impact both on their health, but also on cost reductions. And we've got support that's right, not always on the clinician or the provider. There are community partners and there are other folks in the care model that really help to support that. You know, it really is starting to think differently about that healthcare cost. And so from our perspective, the clinician and physician engagement is so important. I can remember a time going to a group of, of docs and starting to talk and, and so 
socialize this idea around screening, you know, and, and as a non-clinician, a non-physician, I can get up until I'm, I'm blue in the face and start to talk about this. It's really that peer-to-peer. Yeah. So it's Dr. Miller being able to go to his fellow colleagues and talk about the impact that he's seen on his own patients. And so I think the physician champion role is so important in this work. You got to be able to identify those physicians who are bought in early and who can communicate and advocate and push peer-to-peer. And that's just so incredibly important and and really an early step that you got to do. Yeah. And Ray, you have hit a nail right in the head. How There's really two components to that. So even if you get the buy-in and you go, yeah, okay, the case makes sense and this is really functionally care gap closure and I'm in, the clinicians are still in a space of, especially with, you know, 80% of physicians being employed and it's a business model. You can't slow me down. You can't affect my productivity. You must make this as streamlined as possible. So from the informatics standpoint, goal number one, we went from 10 to 14 domains very quickly and it's up to almost 28, 30 questions. We learned very quickly that there was no provider that was actually going to allow that to happen within their clinical setting, and they weren't going to have their medical assistants doing that in an interview format. So we needed to come up with some tools so that the patient could actually self-direct that questionnaire. It turned out it was probably a better workflow as well because the patients are probably more honest if they're not looking someone in the eye and trying to answer that question. But making the workflows as streamlined as possible, patients are self-screening, mm. the tools identify the domains of need. And in a perfect world, those domains of need are identified and flow downstream through the digital system in a platform to the CBOs who can actually pick up that data and reach out and make those connections. And we help the patient make those connections. If we can make it as clinically smooth as possible and as inapparent as possible to the workflow, we can make that connection and get that buy-in. You've described this kind of bell curve, and I understand that that ProMedica is on the leading edge of that bell curve. But I'm curious, as you think about the journey to addressing some of these root causes of health, taking a more holistic approach, what in your mind is the single biggest barrier that an organization might face from moving from status quo to maybe ahead of the curve? Yeah, so I think there's probably a few I would offer. And Dr. Miller, you probably have a different perspective as a physician, so curious your answer here. I think that this has to be embedded in how we deliver care, right? This can't be one additional thing or the flavor of the month. And so building this into your strategy from both a clinician perspective, even from your payment model, right? So if you're a payer, thinking about how you fund this work, and it's got to be fundamentally both how you drive your strategy, but it's got to be core to mission as well. And so doing things like embedding it into your EMR, actually building physician incentives around screening. Hmm. It's part of our strategic plan. And so it's the first priority as an organization to think more holistically. And so really making it part and core of who you are as an organization and embedding it throughout. So it isn't just the next big thing that can then fizzle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kate, I, would, I think we're on the same page. I think you're exactly right. It's around the commitment, the buy-in. It starts with understanding the business case and the argument that you can't afford not to commit to this. And the mistake that some orgs probably make is to consider it, okay, this is an initiative, this is a project, Mm. as opposed to making it a core value and to go out and create an institute and to hire a president like Kate and to actually make a commitment. Otherwise, what you're doing then is adding a project to other people who already have a plate full of work. And then, you know, they're jumping in and donating that time and maybe delivering partway to the need. You need to be all in if you're in this space. And I also think the argument for organizations who have any ambivalence about this sometimes comes from the fact 
that they feel like in some respects they're already doing it. I, I mean, I know that I've talked to some of my peers who go, you know, you know what, we have social workers and we have care navigators sure. and we have we have case managers and discharge planners. This is just bloat into that space. But you have to understand that the model of care is very different. This is a structured format. It is data driven. It is evidence based and it is outcomes focused. And you have to when you come at it that way and work backwards, you realize the only way to, to get there is to actually make an institute commitment. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. Advisory Board's team of over 200 experts is constantly tracking and thinking through the latest developments in healthcare. We unfortunately can't get all of our experts on this podcast to tell you what they're seeing and thinking, but they are regularly sharing their perspectives on the Advisory Board blog. Check out advisory.com blog to read their latest posts on proposed rules, what physicians want, AI, telehealth, and more. That's advisory.com slash blog. I'm getting the sense that ProMedica is a very data-rich organization. How are you actually measuring right now the ROI of a social determinants of health strategy? When we hit last year and we were having 40,000 screens, we knew that that was generating enough downstream intervention that we could start to pull that back in. So we partnered with a data analytics group to be able to really start to crunch those numbers. Mm -hmm. And we have two methods to do that because obviously we have clinically validated methods around the quality of the care and the health outcomes, but the data that's harder to get to is the cost reduction. And are we seeing reduced ED utilization? Are we seeing engagement in primary care? Are we seeing readmission risk reduction? And so we're lucky enough to have, as one of our business line arms, a fairly large payer piece. So we also do healthcare payment. And so we do really deep analytics work in that patient population for when we do screening and intervention. And patients that are in there, we can take downstream from that intervention and bump that up against their internal costs from our payment side and look at claims and actually see claims reductions occur downstream from those interventions. And that gets us very, very specific. We also, though, have an analytics tool that we can expand beyond that because our analytics tool uses artificial intelligence to essentially Mm -hmm. create with clinical data a cost proxy, if you will, around clinical burden and clinical burden corresponds to an average range of what that cost is. And so even where we don't necessarily have direct claims, we can get a sense of cost reduction in our downstream interventions. And that helps us as well to realize, you know, what intervention's working, what isn't, and what's the message we need to take out to our clinicians and also to our third-party payers as we do contracting around value-based care. So that I understand that right, is that AI-based product predicting what the cost reduction might be for a prospective patient or prospective group of patients should they get the interventions that ProMedica is offering? Is that right? Yes. That is exactly what we want to do with that tool. Going forward, we're going to expand that role. So we fully expect, number one, from a resource standpoint, SDOH interventions are always challenged because there's always going to be more need than the ability to deliver to that need. 
post-COVID, I think we're in a delay piece. I think obviously huge job losses. There's evictions that are coming now. There's a tsunami of SDOH need that's probably we're just at the beginning of that's Mm going to be that we will be dealing with the fallout of probably for months and probably years to come. And so it's really important to identify and triage the biggest impact for what that limited resource can deliver to. And so that artificial tool helps us identify and it actually uses it works backwards from clinical burden because SDOH brings cost with it, but clinical burden is where most of the cost applies. So we can look at patients with very specific disease burden and then apply a filter backwards around their SDOH need. And we have a, the, the analytics tool can tell us that yeah, we may not be able to improve their cancer care but we can improve the cost of their cancer care by improving their housing. Hmm. And this subset of patients with this disease burden that has a housing risk, if we can improve that housing risk, we can see a 5 or 8 or $10 million reduction in cost. And maybe that big bang for the buck is only three or 400 patients out of the several thousand that might have a housing need. And then we have the capacity to pursue those patients and get them into that intervention and deliver that bigger bang for the buck from a cost reduction on a triage basis. And then downstream, look at that six months later to see, did we deliver to it and at what percentage? And really hard metric ourselves on delivering to that KPI. This is really, really fascinating. And I think a lot of folks will be interested in how you would actually think about the inputs of something like this. And you mentioned that we're at the beginning of a tsunami of the aftermath effects of dealing with the pandemic. From a data perspective, how has COVID-19 actually changed maybe some of the inputs of this AI platform? Are you actually able to capture new information that maybe we wouldn't have put at the top of the of the list six months ago, but because of COVID are new or significantly worse? So we're, we're seeing everything go up, you know, around the food and the housing. Maybe the interesting part that you don't go to immediately intuitively, but we definitely are seeing is issues around mental health and depression. Mm-hmm. The anxiety around COVID and stress and hopelessness is really having an impact. And we're seeing a really heavy burden climbing from a depression standpoint. And the behavioral health piece is obviously, from a clinical standpoint, a much tougher, longer lift to deliver to and is one of the many areas where there is a scarce resource to deliver to that need. And like most orgs, we all struggle with that. The one other area that we're seeing, again, not on our radar pre-COVID, was around the digital divide Mm. and internet access, right? So we had done a little bit of work there. And obviously, Dr. Miller, as our chief medical information officer, a lot of work there. But the digital divide, access to internet and broadband, certainly an issue for, again, patients, employees as well. Let's talk about each of those. Maybe start with the digital divide. What, what all are you doing to address that challenge in your market? Yeah, that one is a really big challenge. From a technological standpoint, it's, you know, as a healthcare org, it's really tough for us to deliver to. We do have a fairly large grant that's in process right now to help us identify a digital divide in our clinics and in our emergency room settings. And because we, we have seen some preliminary data that if you can actually, especially for the patients that use the ED very heavily, if you can identify them up front and we have a tool that identifies three or more usages within a 12-month period or less, and then we go screen them for digital need. And our goal is, if we can provide this grant, is to actually connect them to tools and to connect them to cellular-based broadband and ultimately connect them to a healthcare app because 
and Kate's point is a great one from a digital vice standpoint. One of the things we're going to see happen is that, you know, the, the Pandora's box of telehealth is open and will never be closed again. And it will become part of the standard of care and it will help us deliver better care in patients that struggle with access. And if they do not have that capacity to have broadband and have a tool in which they can actually access, it's just another way in which we've delivered inequity. So that is a big point for us. And we're looking to potentially get that grant within the next month. And that's part of your screening process. I, I think I heard you say that that perhaps one of those 14 points is screening for digital access. Is that right? Yes, that's a new one since COVID. Kate's exactly right. I think that COVID-19 and even just the, the kind of national focus on racial injustice has created this moment, which for better or for worse, many organizations are just waking up to this idea that they should focus on health equity and social determinants of health right now. So let's say you're talking to somebody who really is at the very beginning stages. How do you suggest they, with a complete blank slate, actually prioritize their efforts and figure out where's the right place for them to begin their journey? Yeah, so probably one of the easiest things is actually to pull out your community health needs assessments that we're all mm -hmm. mandated to do, and, and we do it, and we check the box, and then it sits on a shelf, right? And so there's someone in your organization that is tasked with actually completing those IRS requirements. So I'd pull out the CHNA, find the individual in your organization that has that responsibility. Again, they're, they're probably somewhere, but, but probably not a lot of profile. Again, those reports usually just sit on the shelf. Pull that out and really start to look at the data. There have been priorities that have been set not only by the health system, but in partnership with your local community partners as well. And so take a look at that. I would say bump that up against your strategy. And so if as an organization, you're focused on behavioral health, as an example, you're going to see that need across the community as well. So take the CHNA, pull it off the shelf, dust it off, and then actually bump that up against your strategy. And what is it as an organization that you're focused on? And where do you start to get synergy? And then very quickly go out to community partners, right? As you're jumping into this space, don't do it in isolation. Find the community partners that have been longstanding doing this work and engage in a conversation. And maybe the other thing I'd add to it, which is actually something that you said, Brian, is take a look at if you actually have someone internally who is not only tasked with addressing social determinants of health, but actually has the power and the resources and the pull to be able to actually do that, which I'm very, very happy that ProMedica has instituted that. And it's rare, like we said, it is, it is rare that that is actually the case. Yeah, I think CEO buy-in is also really important. And so obviously our CEO, Randy Ostra, incredibly committed to this work. And that does make a difference. You know, as we talk with other healthcare systems around the country, the level of engagement from your C-suite and certainly from your executive leader is important. And so, you know, Randy ends up talking to a lot of his peers around why, what we've been able to see with the cost savings around this, but being able to make the case from both a business perspective to your CFO, mm -hmm. um, but also to connect that to the organizational strategy and get CEO buy-in is really important as well. Yeah, and I would say that Kate's right on. That, that engagement from the C-suite out drives it internally as well. So into our clinical staff, I think that to a person in our organization, they know that there is a cultural commitment to this. And it actually does really, really help to get that engagement in the clinical front end where we get that initial connection to the patient and where we start to do that screening to, to get that process going. And you all have really been out ahead of the curve. But I want to know what's next. We've already talked a little bit about how COVID has shifted some of your strategy or some of your focus areas, but what's on the roadmap for the next few years for ProMedica? 
Yeah. So we're going to go after pretty hard the employer setting in a B2B model and figure out and actually announce uh, some partnership and work earlier this month. We're going to have a solution that addresses, understands, and identifies employee needs around social and economic and actually solves that. And so we're really excited about the employer space. We think that continues to be where we see innovation happening across healthcare. And so really pushing the needle there as well. The other thing that we're focused on is really starting to expand national interventions. And so as you see different programs, in many ways, if you've seen one program in a market, you've seen one program in a market. And the reality is to get scale across the country to fundamentally change the way we've delivered care, we're going to have to get scale. We're going to have to understand what actually moves the needle. And so we've launched in seven additional markets outside of Ohio, really a push to, to start to standardize and nationalize some of the interventions that are happening across the country. So working on financial opportunity centers and food intervention programs, but making sure we're collecting that data, we're operationalizing those interventions in a way that can be scaled. And Kate's answer is really that and our roadmap is to go bigger, bigger and broader. We're going to continue to grow it. I would add it from a clinical standpoint, there's a real synergy there. Because two years ago when we did our bigger merger and went from two states to 30 states and got into senior care, that employer space includes us. You know, We have another 50,000 employees around 30 states in an industry that can have, by necessity, relatively marginal compensation packages for, in, in the bottom half of the organization and lots of SDOH need that we probably need to deliver to and identify first. So that employer space we sit in. And then the other piece of that for me is on the five-year roadmap is to not just go bigger, but also go deeper. Hmm. And from a clinical standpoint, um, that for me means embedding those SDOH clinical workflows and, and really a thought process deeper into our clinical thinking, have it really be, this is just another care gap closure for me. This is the same as treating blood pressure. This is the same as treating diabetes. I'm making a difference in the live by improving those things and improving their housing is making just a big a difference as improving their sugars on a diabetic. And then on top of that, because we have such a broad number of business lines that do different things in different spaces, to actually not just consider SDOH as yet another business line that delivers to SDOH need, but to make SDOH really an institute of excellence for us and a consultant out into our service lines and have them actually own and culturally incorporate SDOH thought processes into senior care, into our payer side, into our ambulatory and into our acute settings. And we will consult and you will own it because it's also part of your culture. Well, Brian, Kate, I want to thank you so much for coming on Radio Advisory. I have one final question to ask you, and it's one that I'm asking every guest that comes on to the podcast. And it's just to give you a moment to speak directly to our listeners. So I'm curious, what advice do you have for healthcare leaders right now? So my answer would be to that is don't slow down. And by that, I mean this, what we've, I think we've discovered during COVID tons of challenges that has brought us in healthcare, tons more challenges coming, but it's also been an opportunity and it was an opportunity for us. And I think most healthcare orgs have proven now that they can move faster and adapt more and innovate better than any of us ever thought possible. And so I would say resist the urge to let that pendulum swing back. I know there, uh, there's mm-hmm. we're going to hit levels of exhaustion and and this is more change management than large organizations are very used to. And so 
when there's a pause, there's going to be a natural tendency to fall back into that inertia mode. And so I would say this, it's, there's an exponential power to the momentum we have right now and use it. There's evidence that's growing. There's great things happening. We need to continue to seize the opportunity to move the ball forward at a faster pace. Kate, what about you? Yeah. So maybe on that theme, I would say that around change, you know, change really happens at the speed of trust. And so certainly in this moment, the level of cultural competence, the level of humility that healthcare comes to these topics at is incredibly important. And so, yeah, we have to go fast, but we also have to build trust in a way that we, we, we haven't done, quite frankly, both internally and externally in the communities that we're serving. Well, thank you so much for coming on Radio Advisory. Healthcare organizations can't ignore the importance of social determinants of health. There is so much that health systems can be doing to improve the root causes of health. And as Kate and Brian said, it all starts with data. And then make sure you're actually connecting those patients to the services that will support their overall health, whether that's inside or outside of the system. And really, that's just the beginning. And that's why we're here to help.